to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Do you feel that life is going too fast? Are you concerned that the promise of technology to make everything better isn't necessarily coming true? Do you worry about the environment and how our actions affect nature? Does globalization confuse you? Well, welcome to the 19th century. Like the internet in the 21st century, the telegraph and especially the railroad changed everything in American life, including the way wars were fought. We'll find out how from Professor William Thomas, author of The Iron Way, Railroads, the Civil War, and the Making of Modern America, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Field Annex Number 2, the one in Gross Point Shores, Michigan, uh, coming to you live over the 
Contemporary Technology of a Walmart Next Book, uh, eight times heavier than its competitor from uh, Microsoft or whoever makes them, but uh, 10 times cheaper. But not speaking for Microsoft or Walmart or East Carolina University, where I normally broadcast from, not there today, uh, but not speaking for them, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do. Well, I'm here back in Michigan, as uh, was the case uh, recently, two weeks ago, uh, once again, keeping an eye on Civil War Talk Radio's number one fan, my mother, who I'm happy to report is back here in the house with me tonight, uh, having experienced a uh, hospital and rehabilitation stay before coming home. Uh, I am just uh, impressed with people who have made their careers the giving of care to others, especially the elderly. Having done a little bit of it at home just for a few days here, I can say it is a full-time job, uh, one I'm not particularly good at, but uh, uh, those those who do it really are, and uh, uh, it's really something what, what they accomplish. In the interval since we last talked last week, uh, before coming here, my brother was here over the weekend. One of my brothers uh, and I took the weekend to go on an annual college buddy reunion weekend, four of us get together every year, uh, as because uh, they listen to Civil War talk radio for reasons uh, of their own choosing, there was much talk of the podcast during the weekend, especially uh, on the last two shows, I commented on the tendency of institutions to hire people who are not historians to teach history, because as we all know, anyone can teach history. And indeed, that became the theme of last weekend on Cape Cod. Uh, uh, anyone can teach history was, was repeated to me at numerous times during the weekend, uh, whenever it was appropriate. Not anyone can ride a bike, however. It turns out I fell off during our ride uh, along the coast at one point and bruised a few things, but but survived. And we also had our annual uh, four-person golf tournament. Uh, This year, my team uh, won. Uh, You losers know who you are out there. Uh, Of course, they won last year, so next year will be uh, televised on ESPN, the rubber match. Uh, But I will say this year, I did not play as incredibly badly as I have in the past. I'd learned a few things. And especially, I want to point out that at no time in the weekend did I strike a moving ball the Paul Harney Golf Course in East Falmouth, Massachusetts, is neither a putt-putt course nor the U.S. Open, and thus you have to wait for your ball to stop before you hit it on every hole. And I did that. Next week, uh, I'm off back on the road, not uh, not to play golf, but to go uh, to the Civil War Institute, and looking forward to that very much. Hope uh, some of you may have the good fortune to have signed up and gotten one of the the hotly contested spots, uh, or perhaps you're even presenting there, in which case, uh, same thing, hope to see you there and and talk. I will be recording some shows there, which we'll play during the fall season. This is our last show of the 2017-18 academic year, so uh, we'll be gone for a little bit, but I'll be out scouting out new guests for the show at the Institute week-long meeting, and I will be recording some shows there. We'll see how that works. It'll be a new experiment, and uh, hopefully we'll have 
a wonderful season next year as well. You can find out who will be on next year when we come back at the end of August by going to impedimentsofwar.org. I don't think I've sent to Mark Gaffney the lineup for August, late August and September yet, uh, still firming it up. But there are some really wonderful people, uh, some old friends of the show, some new ones. It should be interesting and hopefully some interesting shows recorded this summer. So come on down to impedimentsofwar.org. While you're there, feel free to donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. My college friends pointed out to me that I should pay for everything over the weekend because I could use your donations, the college, the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund donations. I, of course, would not do anything like that. Uh, I might spend them on myself, but not on those other guys on the trip. Uh, They're on their own dime. So it's not tax deductible. I can spend it on anything I want, but it does often help defray costs, including cost of travel to Civil War Institute uh, and, and other actual quasi-legitimate uh, academic-related expenses. So that's what's going on uh, Civil War talk radio land. Let's talk about the Civil War itself. Tonight's book is one that I found uh, extremely stimulating. It challenges some traditional interpretations. It uses some innovative methods, uh, and uh, it's it, and it has a very patient author who I originally scheduled uh, double-booked for a, a week earlier this season. He very graciously agreed to uh, uh, be with us today instead of then. Uh, he is Professor William G. Thomas, the uh, John and Catherine Angle Chair in the Humanities at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He is the author of The Iron Way, Railroads, The Civil War, and the Making of Modern America. Professor Thomas, are you there? I am indeed. Uh, Jerry, it's nice to speak with you. Well, you too. Welcome to the show. Uh, in our correspondence, you signed your name Will. Is Will uh, what you go by? Is that okay? It is. That's right. Please do call oh. me Will. And, and and Jerry, for me, will save, save us lots of time. Well, uh, let me just start with a conventional question about your uh, career path or uh, research agenda. Yeah. Uh, what brought you to, the, brought to this you topic? To sure. Well, for years I had worked with Ed Ayers at the University of Virginia on the Valley of the Shadow Digital mm. History Project. And um, I, I was the project manager for that endeavor for many years. And, you know, in that project we were comparing two counties, two societies, one in the north in Pennsylvania, um, Franklin County, and one in the south in Virginia, Augusta County, Virginia. And they were, you know, at either end of essentially the Great Valley of Virginia, as it was called in the 19th century. Um, It's really the Cumberland Valley and the Shenandoah Valley, um, this geographic region. And so uh, both were... um, uh, fully swept up in the Civil War, um, both sent t- tens of ten thousand or so soldiers into the war. Um, both were uh, were extremely vibrant uh, economies on the eve of the war, and um, in that project, which was a, a digital project, we were digitizing everything we could find about these two societies and putting them online, this was back in the late 1990s, 
early 2000s. Uh, and in that project, I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about and working on um, the differences that slavery made between uh, these societies and the um, highly networked nature, the, the, the modern sensibilities that I saw everywhere in, in the original sources, in the newspapers, in the letters and diaries of, of men and women, and, and young men and young women who went into this war. And, um, and the railroads were uh, so obviously vitally important to these societies. Um, and it led me to, to wonder, you know, why, ha- why is the scholarship, um, you know, the traditional histories of the Civil War, really kind of disregarded the South's engagement with railroad development, uh, just downplayed it, if you will. Because I wasn't seeing that in the Valley of the Shadow project. Um, that certainly didn't seem to be the case. Now, Augusta had Stanton, of course, as its county seat, and the railroads were vitally important to Stanton. Um, so that got my thinking going, Jerry, and that really was what is the genesis of this project. I wanted to look more deeply into the effects of the railroad in the coming, the fighting, and the in the aftermath of the war, this this railroad as a symbol of modernity, this railroad as a kind of vehicle for modern ways of understanding oneself, and I think 19th century Americans were were experiencing this this wave of modernity um, that the steam age brought, and, and the telegraph, of course, as well. Um, well, let me say that uh, there's another one of the that, but I'll pause there. Uh, I, I struggle uh, every time teaching the Civil War course uh, by trying to disabuse students of the, the traditional notion of a pre-modern agricultural South uh, uh, fighting against a modern industrial North. Right. Uh, and which goes back to the lost cause. And I've typically pointed out that uh, the North is also highly agricultural in 1860. It's not an industrial nation yet. But you really take the other approach of showing how modern the South was in 1860. Right. Right. Um, This is a a difficult subject to, to teach, as you said, and um, a difficult subject for um, uh, Civil War um, uh, students and American history students just to understand, right? Because we, the, the sort of mythology is that it's an industrial north defeating an agrarian south. And we don't often recognize that the, the south's economy was one of the world's most powerful, one of the world's most wealthy. Um, that uh, its its investment in railroads, as I as I discovered, I was looking into this. I didn't know exactly what I would find, but this the investment in the um, physical infrastructure of railroad development, both through private investment and state aided investment, a similar mix to northern uh, northern states, um, looked very much like the Midwest, actually. Um, and, and I thought that comparison was really important to make because it shows that the South is, is, is not this a modern, lagging, um, 
dead end on the evolutionary branch of modernity, you know, because of slavery uh, simply heading down a pathway that's doomed to uh, eventual failure. Instead, and, and this is the thing I think we have to come to terms with and is difficult, is that the South, uh, the South use of, of enslaved labor could in fact have continued, could in fact have uh, carried on for decades and um, married to this modernity, this, this growth of, of industry and, um, and of modern ideas and modern ways of understanding the world. Those weren't necessarily incompatible. So the idea that, yes, that, that slavery is incompatible with modern technology, specifically the railroad and the modern world as a whole, um, your, your argument is that that's not the case. Um, in, in, uh, well, let's come back to that after a break. Let me, let me set this up. Um, so we have one of the, the chestnuts in American historiography is the question about whether slavery was profitable uh, or, or indeed whether slaveholders even had any way of keeping track of that. Um, so that's one question I want to come back with. And a second one uh, is the, the gauge issue. And yeah. we'll, we'll have to take a break here and come back, but I'll, I'll two teases there for our listeners to prepare for. Yeah. And listeners, get yourself a railroad map. Uh, there's a good one in the book, uh, uh, but, but get one, and that will help you understand as we go further along. I'm talking tonight with William G. Thomas, author of The Iron Way, Railroads, The Civil War, and the Making of Modern America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with William G. Thomas, author of The Iron Way, Railroads, The Civil War and the Making of Modern America. It is a provocative and stimulating book that makes a number of interesting arguments, including uh, one that we just began discussing, the idea that uh, slavery was not incompatible with modern technology, the development of railroads, that slavery might have continued on for decades because slavery and railroad growth went hand in hand. And, uh, well, let me jump back in with a question I started to ask before the break. Uh, did sure. railroads make slavery profitable? Well, economic historians have looked in detail at this, and there are some studies that suggest exactly that. Um, I'm not prepared to go quite that far, uh, mm-hmm. suggesting that slave, that um, railroads made slavery profitable. Um, but I will say that, that there's an intense and deep correlation between uh, railroad development in the South and in this period, right up to the Civil War, and the extraordinary profitability of enslaved labor uh, in the plantation south. And so, essentially, railroads uh, built by enslaved labor <laughs> at radically lower capitalizations than their northern counterparts um, opened up new lands for plantation agriculture and the transportation of plantation goods, like cotton in particular, and, and did so at a, at a rate that, that uh, led to the expansion not only of plantation agriculture in the South, but of course of, of slavery. And so um, there's, a, there's a relationship between the transportation technology that railroads, you know, um, enable and the, um, and the the capacity of in of slavery to expand and produce uh, cotton for the market, and so um, you know the the price of ins- of a of a single enslaved person rose astronomically in the 1850s, and it's not mm-hmm. accidental or coincidental that this is the period of the boom of railroad development across the South opening these new regions and, um, uh, and laying lines to, uh, uh, to provide the transportation for, for uh, cotton agriculture. 
Now, at one point, you make uh, you, you observe that ten thousand slaves a year were working on railroads in the South uh, around yeah. 1850. Uh, but what struck me about that is that out of four million roughly enslaved people, that's not even a quarter of one percent. So it, it's in one sense, it's not a large number. But it seems your argument is more based on the idea that that railroads are opening markets, allowing transportation of slaves as property, uh, creating new land, opening new land that demands slave labor. So uh, yes, so it does it does make sense. Um, before going further, well, I, uh, I will say that I oh, was, go ahead. Yeah. I was, if I could just say, I was, I was surprised sure. in in looking into this, just how much of the South Railroad Railroad Network was was built, was constructed, and run and operated by enslaved people. Um, mm-hmm. It's these were, you know, labor camps out in the out in the, the back country in the uh, mountain regions of the south, in uh, the far uh, uh, um, southwest. Um, these, these railroad camps were essentially slave labor camps. And they, uh, I was surprised how, how reliant southern uh, railroad developers were on enslaved labor. I just didn't, I hadn't really thought about it uh, mm-hmm. in those terms. And in particular, Railroad companies begin buying enslaved people and holding them on their books. As I went through annual report after annual report of railroad companies, they would have, you know, uh, in their accounting balance sheets, they'd have a, a, a subtotal for what they often called the Negro Fund. And what that was was the the, the estimated value, the capital value of all the enslaved people that that railroad company owned. And that that was a very different picture of the role of slavery in the South than, than we traditionally understand. There are so many interesting ideas here. Uh, and listeners, you, you need to go out and get this book and read it yourself. Uh, some weeks I'm able to make a note sheet before the the, the talk, and I figure we can cover most of the big points in the book. That's not the case tonight. There's uh, far more interesting material here than we can talk about in the next 30 minutes. Uh, foreign investment as a factor in the South Railroad is one example, although maybe we can get to that later. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to jump okay. right ahead to the wartime. Uh, yes. yes. And, and you make the argument that in 1861, when the war begins, uh, Everyone knows the North has all the railroads in the country, and everyone has seen the maps that show just two, uh, maybe three, depending how you define it, uh, um, uh, east-west lines across the South, whereas the North is a big spaghetti bowl. You argue that the South actually, railroads actually gave the South an advantage over the North in 1861. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how, how can, how so? Well... The um, I, and actually I've I've done some work since the book on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a new essay in in Civil War history that was published last uh, last year, and and in that piece um, I kind of build on this very point. Um, when the North attempts to, in many ways, occupy the South. Um, it's faced with a, a bit of a conundrum because there are only certain points within the South uh, on the railroad network that can act as um, 
what I call funnel points. Um, these are uh, zones of landscape and rail network capability that allow for the flow of men, material, equipment, horses, <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. into the war zone. And so while the war was certainly fought on the battlefield, um, it was also fought for the control of these these interstitial spaces, these zones, these these funnel points, and not only for the control of them, but for managing the flow of all of these war material and people through and animals through those zones. And um, you know, I think the 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 the, the South. Um, uh, the configuration of these funnel points at particular places, like Alexandria, Virginia, as one, uh, where I am right now. In fact, my hometown, my hometown is Alexandria. We're both in our hometowns, as I understand it. So, That's right. I'm, I'm back in the uh, Detroit area. Yeah. So um, these places um, were difficult for the Union command to. Um, Occupy to um, uh, to um, gain control over, and um, uh, and I think it's a it's it's often the case that that people will point to the gauge issue as one of the determining factors here, mm-hmm. and the South actually had uh, a lot of its railroad network in the same gauge relative to large parts of the North. There were. There were many different subregions of northern gauges, um, and it's it's just not the case that you know the the, the north was all one gauge and the four four point eight four mm-hmm. four feet eight and a half inch uh, gauge, and, and that the south was was somehow uh, a potpourri. Um, large parts of the south were on um, a wider gauge, but but that made those regions capable of. Uh, of uh, defending themselves. So the, the railroad affects the war in obvious ways, the ability to move troops around. And, and you, you cite examples uh, from early in the war where the South seems to be thinking in a more modern way about warfare yeah. and military transportation. Um, yeah. uh, I, I would guess most listeners certainly know the story of uh, the first Battle of Bull Run and the Confederate reinforcements arriving by rail, uh, but you also talk. You compare this to uh, McClellan in in the Peninsula Campaign. Uh, yes. How was he pre-modern compared to the South? Yeah. Um, so McClellan, so McClellan seeks to lay siege on the city of Richmond, and his his um, use of the railroad as a supply chain, supply line. Is um, you know limited, and mm-hmm. he's not really. I think what, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that that McClellan. There's a transition from McClellan's 1862 uh, way of understanding how to capture the South, and then the 1864 and 1865 campaigns of Sherman and Sheridan and Grant, and I call those later. Um, that that later move railroad generalship, right? They understood, mm-hmm. or they came to understand, in a way that McClellan did not, the network capabilities of the South's railroad system, and how to um, attack it, disable it, and wage war on it, and turn it to their own um, 
advantages and uses. And McClellan hadn't thought in those terms, at least as far as I could tell. I mean, he had, um, uh, he really was focused on a, a kind of older model of get close to the city of Richmond, sees the city of Richmond as a city rather than as a railroad network. Now, you use uh, a technique for illustrating this, uh, tying in with digital history that you've mentioned a couple of times. I know some listeners are asking themselves, what just is that? Um, one example is the, the graphic on page 92. It's a, a looks sort of like a poster with a lot of words on it, just, just words in uh-huh. different size. And the larger the word, the more off, the larger the type used for that word, the more often it appeared in the Union officer correspondence during the campaign, the Peninsula campaign. Right. So the biggest right. single word is war. Then we see enemy, force, river, fort, house, Richmond, Monroe. Um, railroad is quite small. Uh, right. Even though, but yeah, it, they were on the, you, the Richmond and York it, River Railroad. But could you talk a bit about that technique of, of analyzing what people are yeah, thinking of in this way? Sure, sure. So, so uh, one of the things I, I did in, in trying to understand this is take all of um, uh, the correspondence from the official records of the War of Rebellion. This is the you know the go-to source for Civil War historians, right? I mean, it's the, mm-hmm. the OR as we call it. Um, the official records. And these are printed volumes, but they've been digitized, and they're available as digitized text. And so I wanted to isolate all of the Peninsula campaign uh, correspondence of the Union officers. So these are this is McClellan and his staff. And Mm -hmm. um, these are not the after-action reports. These are just the during real-time correspondence of the campaign in June 1862, uh, well, really through May and June, and um, it was what 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 we're doing with that graph is showing um, the words that are most frequently used as a proportion of the whole corpus, right, of mm-hmm. all of the letters that Union officers wrote, and so it, it gives us an insight into their concerns in this campaign, and their concerns are are quite. Uh, clearly not about how to control the railroads or the bridges or the sort of systems that make Richmond what it was for the Confederates, where, you know, five railroads converge. There's very little understanding of that in 1862. This is a move up the rivers using the rail line of one rail line, the Richmond-New York River, to maybe approach the city but and supply the army, but there's no sense of a, of a wider campaign to use the rail system to the, to the Union Army's advantage. And it's clear from, the, you know, from the, their, their correspondence where this fits. And uh, in contrast to um, the Atlanta campaign and Sherman's correspondence, it's a very stark contrast. So something has been learned in the Union high command, right, between 18... 18- and 1864, and it's about the, the way in which the railroads can structure the war. And exactly. When you look at uh, that graph on page 156, the single largest word is road, which you point out is often used to mean railroad. Uh, right. Railroad itself is a large word, enemy force, Atlanta, field, position. But there's railroad and road right at the top. Uh, river's much smaller. They're, they're not thinking Napoleonic 
traditional geographic terms, but uh, a geography defined by railroads. Uh, I want to yeah, change gears. I want to come. Nature, oh, go ahead. The second nature that sits on top of the yes. natural uh, system of rivers and and hills and mountains. It's you know, and it's understanding that second nature system that Sherman and Grant really perfect. It, it, I thought that was a fascinating point that you made, the, the whole idea of a second nature, uh, that the railroad changes geography. When you look at a map and there's a mountain, that's very different than if you look at a map and there's a mountain with a railroad tunnel going through it. Yeah, right, uh, exactly, exactly. You know, one one is a huge barrier and the other one can be crossed in, in hours or less. Right. And, and so railroads literally change the map, change the geography, change relationships between places in a way uh, that you argue, you know, people like McClellan don't fully grasp, but Sherman and, right. and others do. Uh, right. We're, we're about to take another break. When we uh, come back from this one, I want to start with a, I want to get back to the, the railroad strategy very much before uh, we close up, but you make another argument about the blockade that, that on the surface seems unrelated to railroads, but mm-hmm. in fact, uh, I, I think was, was again, very uh, you know, provocative, original. It really made me think about it. Uh, so when we come back, we'll talk about how the Union naval blockade affected the South's identity as a modern nation. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that with our guest tonight, William G. Thomas. He's the author of the Iron Way, Railroads, the Civil War, and the Making of Modern America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Will Thomas, author of The Iron Way, Railroads, The Civil War, and the Making of Modern America. We've been talking about the dramatic effect that railroads had, uh, not just on the way war was made during the Civil War, but on the whole nature of society before the war, the the, uh, surprising synergy between slavery and uh, railroad development, and uh, ended up with a question about the blockade. Will, you make an argument that the blockade has an effect beyond the simple denial of economic goods to the South that, yeah. that really affects their, their identity. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, here again, we have to think of Southerners as they thought of themselves, um, white Southerners I'm speaking of here, who mm-hmm. saw their world in, in 1860 as... Um, highly interconnected, modern, um, one of personal mobility. Um, people could, could go places and um, travel between cities and communicate between uh, relatives and families and business depended on these kinds of intercommunication. And um, during the Civil War, the White South really continued to see itself in those terms as as a nation, as a modern nation that practiced that kind of mobility, uh, personal mobility and, and mobility of capital and mobility of ideas and, and um, of goods and, and, and services. And the blockade didn't just keep uh, uh, European goods from reaching uh, the, the South, the Confederacy. It began as it slowly but perceptibly and eventually clearly to shut the South off at, from others and shut the South off from, shut the white South off from one another. And th- this really kind of came home to me reading Mary Chestnut's diary when at the end of the war, it's June of 1865, and she's sitting there really looking out her window in Charleston and seeing this world of retreat. And she writes, we are shut in here turned with our faces to a dead wall, no mails, a letter is sometimes brought by a man on horseback traveling through the wilderness made by Sherman. All railroads have been destroyed and the bridges are gone. We are cut off from the world here to eat out our hearts. Mm. That's very powerful. You know, I think the, the, the blockade create in the same way that there are railroad... Uh, central places that are highly networked and make this second nature system flow, right? There are also ports that the South has uh, operated for during the war and for a long time beforehand, like Charleston and Mobile and Pensacola, that are, that are, um, that are similarly uh, center points of, of connection to the world and to one another. And as those, you know, as those... Uh, Ports fall. Um, you know, I tried to chart those and how how far you could go for in a day's drive uh, by horseback or by by uh, wagon. How far you could go from one of those major ports like a Mobile. Um, what what portion of the network is lopped off by the fall of a major port? And the blockade, you know, starts to slowly choke the South. But I I do think that this is an important 
um, and often overlooked aspect of the blockade, that it, it has this effect inside of the White South of, as Mary Chestnut feared, being cut off from the world, all railroads destroyed, no networks, um, just here to eat out our hearts, as she put it. One of the sort of underlying argument throughout this book is that there's a, a profitable comparison to be made between the effect of railroads and uh, the mobility of, of information, goods, and services uh, in the 19th century and the Internet today. Uh, last weekend, my wife back in Greenville sent me a text that the uh, it turned out a, a truck knocked over a pole and 26,000 people, including uh, Emily, were without uh, the internet or cable television for an evening, uh, the horror, the horror, uh, nothing yeah. but a mere text, you know, phone to, to work with. Uh, but how literally, uh, it, it does, you know, wait, I can't work. I can't order anything. I can't order food. I can't, uh, mm-hmm. work on my manuscript. I can't do anything I would normally do if the internet is down. We've all mm-hmm. had that experience. Uh, so the great iron internet uh, went down gradually throughout the South. Yes. And, and uh, that gets us back to the, the railroad strategy. How, talk more about Sherman. We, we think of him as, you know, the, the Sherman neckties destroying the rails as he goes. But you point out he's also a great railroad builder. Right. So Sherman is the preeminent railroad general in this war. Um, because what he does is he, he, not, he doesn't so much destroy the southern railways as capture them, rebuild them, and turn them against the Confederate Army um, and use them against the Confederate Army. Um, he recognizes also that, uh, that the places to capture are the places that have these highly networked um, linkages of rail, and, um, and he goes after them um, relentlessly. And so he sees that he can... He, he, he also sees one other thing that I think is really important, and I try to make this point. He sees that, um, that the, the railroads uh, could... System that, that, that his strategy could also lead to the, dis, the, the dismantling of, of slavery, that hmm. the railroads were kind of, um, as you put it, synergistic with slavery. And, um, and he understood that in figuring out the southern landscape, the swamps, rivers, marshes, cane thickets, and comprehending the, the natural landscape and the second nature landscape of the railroad that he could uh, he could apply that he could he could isolate the man-made systems that that protected the south and that made it vital and successful and he could cut those to pieces turn them to his advantage do you this makes me think uh, right at the very beginning of your book you also point out how uh, railroads are both uh, ways that slavery can extend itself, but they're also conduits of freedom. Uh, the, the enslaved people themselves see it that way. Right, right. And this is something that I didn't really expect or, or know about until I began digging into this research and, and reading 
um, ex-slave narratives that are um, in, in the Library of Congress, and they're widely published. But you know, if you if you read those and you see how many times the railroad comes up as a metaphor for freedom, as a um, and and the same is true for for Lincoln. Lincoln appears in the South. Uh, over and over again, it's uh, Lincoln is a messenger. Even after his assassination, the the sort of image of Lincoln is described by ex-slaves as you know walking down the railroad tracks. Here comes freedom, you know, freedom, and freedom is personal mobility after all, right? I mean, that is the 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 distinguishing characteristic of freedom is the ability to move one's body wherever one wants in society, and. Um, segregation, which comes later, was nothing less than, of course, an attempt to restrict the movement of bodies of people through a space. And railroads were the uh, the ultimate uh, example of that mobility, um, that freedom. And so there's a relationship. Yes, the the enslaved people immediately moved to railroads as the way to move then toward other places that would be zones of freedom. The uh, th- This brings us into the post-war era, and your, your final chapter talks about that. Uh, one fascinating thing that I had not realized, uh, you state that given what people like Sherman did uh, capturing, then rebuilding and operating the Southern Railroads, that when these southern railroads were returned to their pre-war owners by the U.S. government after the war, uh, contrary to the idea that the South has been devastated, uh, you say they were actually in as good or better shape than they were in 1861. Yeah. Um, this this may surprise some listeners, and uh, there it may be some me. who <laughs> vehemently disagree. Um <laughs> But when I read the the reports of the Union Army, U.S. Military Railroads Division, and um, the and Sherman's reports as well, uh, and dug into these at the National Archives in Washington D.C. and really looked at sort of these original records, I kept finding evidence of this ongoing um, rebuilding effort that the U.S. Military Railroads conducted in 1864 and 65, across the Deep South especially, um, a little bit in Virginia, less so in North Carolina, but, uh, but Tennessee into Georgia and Alabama um, and South Carolina, these, these rail lines were um, rebuilt for purpose for the Union Army and then turned over to uh, Southern corporations at a previous owners in many cases, at a, at a discounted rate and, uh, you know, or discounted cost. And a lot of labor, when I, I, they, the Union Army calculated uh, the amount of labor time, the material, the cost of all the equipment. There are huge tables of this in the National Archives. And it just, seems to, it just seemed to me to say altogether, um, as I tabulated these all up and then mapped them on across the South, that the it is just a myth that you know this destroyed railroad network was you know left and that mm-hmm. the Union Army just walked away, for example, you know, and the South had to quote rebuild itself. That's just not true in the case of many of these uh, railroad 
networks and railroad companies. So they they are uh, functioning. They they are relatively strong. Uh, you yeah. talk about uh, a little bit about segregation, uh, incipient segregation on these railroads. There are, are, are so many other things uh, we could talk about the the zones of war, proximity to railroad. Uh, with just a few minutes left, it, it, have I left out a major concept that that uh, you you that, that we ought to have talked about? Uh, no, I uh, think you you hit uh, all I, of the ones that are on my list, Jerry. I've got them right here. I've written them out, and you you touched on each one of them. All right, the, the, well, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. Um, I, I'm a little annoyed at how much work I'm going to have to do this fall, uh, reconfiguring some of my lectures for history 3225, U.S. history 1840 <laughs> to 1877, because you you've given me a lot to think about here in terms oh. of. How, how the war was conducted and the effect of railroads. And I think the whole uh, analogy of, of the Internet and its pervasive effect, not just on uh, uh, economics, but on, on the way people live, the way they move, uh, is, is really uh, worth mm-hmm. thinking about. And I, I see a lot mm-hmm. to discuss there. Um, with two minutes left, let me ask you the Civil War time machine question. If you okay. could go back to the 19th century, it, either before, during, or after the war, all of which you write about, uh, for 30 minutes in complete safety, knowing you would return, uh, who would you want to talk to in that time? Hmm. Who would I want to talk to? I'd want to talk to Frederick Douglass. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and you, who escaped slavery by rail? Yeah. That's right. I mean, the book opens with his, uh, I think, under um, understudied and not very well known uh, escape from slavery on a railroad. I mean, he literally—it's not the Underground Railroad. He goes no. and he just gets on the train in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and this is something we didn't quite talk about. But he consults the. The timetables, and, and I think these timetables are interfaces, like we have interfaces to the Internet. It's an interface mm-hmm. to a, a world of movement, right, to places and time-space travel. And he is able to uh, use that interface of a, of a timetable to imagine his freedom and how he's going to achieve it. And he times his, uh, uh, his arrival at the depot precisely to have the least conspicuous movement for himself, he has the timetable, he knows when the train's going to be there, and he steps right on board. And I just would want to, yeah, I would want to talk to Frederick Douglass for many reasons, his, mm-hmm. his extraordinary uh, brilliance and his, um, his just intellectual um, coherence and, and depth, uh, his humanity, but I'd also want to ask him, what does it feel like to step on that train? <laughs> <laughs> well, what a moment that must have been. Yeah. Uh, well, what this, a moment. this, and 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 what a book this is. I really did enjoy it. One of my graduate students, Brian Henry, suggested it to me. I I bought a copy at Harper's Ferry, uh, the National Park Bookstore, and had it on my desk, yeah. but hadn't read it. He's working. Uh, uh, my graduate student's working on a master's thesis involving uh, why people in a certain West Virginia town went one way or the other during the Civil War. And he yeah. had already discovered their connection to the railroad had much to do with it before reading your book. Wow. Uh, so, uh, uh, so this book was, he just, you know, raved about it. And I'm, I'm glad he, uh, suggested that I read it and that we got to talk today. Uh, 
Listeners, it's our last live show till we come back in August. Uh, have a good summer, everyone. Will, thank you so much uh, for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. You're very welcome, Jerry. Thank you for inviting me. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 